How are we doing? Okay, I got one great and some smiles. I'll have to do. I notice uh, at least two people in the front row have fruit, so I think that means my word had better not be bad today. That's right. We want to discourage bringing projectiles to church in the future. But I understand. I understand. Okay. If you want to uh, open your Bibles to John chapter 13 or just follow along with the notes, whichever you prefer, but that's what we're talking about this morning. We've been working through the book of John, so we're on chapter 13. Now, uh, I want you to know just by, you know, setup so you know what to expect in the future, um, probably if I had to say what is the most important passage in the Bible, uh, I would say it's probably John 14 through 17, because it's Jesus talking to his disciples on the night, before, on the night of his betrayal, uh, right before he goes to the cross. And so he's saying some amazing things, and we're going to be getting into that in John 14 through 17 in the not-too-distant future. But um, just so you know, Starting next week, I'm going to take a little break from John. I'm going to postpone picking up with chapter 14 because uh, I've, just been, I've been feeling for a couple months like uh, just there's a lot of spiritual warfare going on. Has anyone else Amen. noticed that? Yeah, this crowd? Yeah. Uh, it's almost like you're going for God and someone doesn't want you to, right? And so uh, it's probably good every couple years that I, that I address spiritual warfare. And I'm just feeling like this is the time. So we'll take a few weeks, probably four weeks, to talk about spiritual warfare. And then we'll jump back in with John 14 so you know what's coming. All right? That's the commercial or the previews uh, before the show. So now we'll, you know, get on with the show. Uh, all right. So John 13. Now... This is, just so you put it in chronological context, this is the Last Supper. Um, we're, we're at the Last Supper. Remember, uh, this night, Jesus is going to be betrayed. He's going to be arrested, and he's going to be tried the next morning. He's going to go to the cross. Uh, this is all getting ready to come down, and Jesus is very aware of this, and that's the context of this chapter. <coughs> Pardon me. So let's start. I'm going to read some select verses here, not all of them. We start with verse 1. It says, Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. I'm just going to pause here. I just want to make a quick prayer. Lord, it's my prayer this morning that we would get a fresh revelation of your love. Amen. Somehow this morning, that we would have a personal encounter with the love of the Father, with the love of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. And so that's the theme this morning. That's what this chapter is all about, the love of God. And what I want you to see is uh, Jesus knows that his hour has come. And so... Really what this verse is saying is, knowing what was coming, and we just read in, in chapter 12 that Jesus, when he looked forward to the cross, was troubled in spirit. We're going to see in verse 21 of this chapter that when Jesus uh, looked over at Judas, who was getting ready to betray him, he was troubled in spirit. So Jesus' spirit is troubled. And of course we know that tonight he's going to spend hours in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying and literally sweating drops of blood because he's troubled in spirit over what's coming. So, have you ever been troubled in spirit? Have you ever been distressed? Have you been persecuted? Uh, Jesus' response to this is to maintain love, to continue in love. And, and, and I really want you to get that. There's some simple things being said here, but they're profound, that Jesus in the midst of the most difficult situation he's going to face in his entire 33 years of life, has decided he's just going to finish the way he started with love. He's just going to love. 
And so he loved them to the end. And I want you to be aware of the challenge of loving in the midst of distress and persecution. We even sometimes use it as an excuse. How many of you have done something unloving and then followed it with, I'm sorry, I'm just having a bad day? And that makes it okay. Because, oh, well, if you're under distress, you can be a jerk. I understand. Because I've been under distress and I've been a jerk also. So that's okay. Right? I don't know about you, but I find it more challenging to be loving in the midst of distress and persecution. And yet Jesus, his example, in his most distressing time, is just to love. And that needs to hit us. I mean, uh, we need to get a revelation of the love of Jesus. And this is the best place to do it, where uh, you think about what he's going through. And he's concerned more about the disciples than himself. Amen. I'm not always good at that. Uh, when I'm in distress, sometimes I'm more concerned about me than you. I know that's hard to believe. <laughs> but that happens. But not to Jesus. And so that's our example. And not only is it our example, we're going to find that this entire chapter, Jesus is trying to prepare the disciples for something. And he's challenging them to up their game in love. And by extension, challenging us to up our game in love. So, let's jump on in further. Look at verses 3 through 5. So, first, Jesus knew his hour had come, and he decides to love. Second, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, he rose from supper and laid his garments uh, and laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel which, with which he was girded. Now, this is way more than it looks like. This is an intentional lesson that he's giving the disciples here. And so I want us to get everything that's in this. He didn't just decide, well, this is a good time for me to, you know, remind uh, the church, how important it is to serve every once in a while. He's saying, knowing his limitless authority, read that, uh, verse 3, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. He has authority over everything in creation. And then he'd come from the Father, he's going to the Father, he's seated at the right hand of God. There's only one higher position in the entire universe, and that's the guy sitting next to him, Right? Knowing his authority, he decides to engage in the lowest position of service possible. Amen. There's a point here. There's a message here. Now, uh, it is the lowest position of service uh, possible because uh, if, if you were living in this time and you had enough money to you know, have a house and have some servants, you might have a cook. Uh, you might have a butler who, you know, answers the door and does stuff. You might have someone who cleans. And it would be customary because they didn't have payment. They walked around in dirt and, and animal poop, uh, you know, because they had animals. And uh, it would be customary if a guest came to your house to make sure that they, uh, as a courtesy, their feet were washed. And whose job was that? The absolute lowest servant in the house. The, the, the one... Uh, if, if you were the foot washer, that was, you know, if you had, like watched Downton Abbey, that was, that was it. You were on the bottom, you were on the ground floor, you probably didn't even live in the house, you lived in a shack uh, near the house. You, that was it. That was the lowest position of service possible, the foot washer, the guy who washed the animal poop off the foot, feet of the guest, right? And Jesus, who has been seated in the position of honor, for the Last Supper, gets up and places himself in the lowest possible position in the room. Knowing, check the context, knowing who he was, knowing that he had all authority, knowing that he had come from the Father, in light of who I am, in light of the incredible, unprecedented, unlimited authority that I have, I am now going to take the lowest position in the room. You get that? And so he's trying to show something here. 
He's engaging in service. And uh, because voluntary service is an expression of love. Now, it's one thing if you serve because you have to. If I pay you to serve, that's just an expression of wanting money. But if you don't have to serve, if in fact you're in charge and people are there to serve you and you decide to serve, that is a mark of love. It's an act of love, right? So Jesus is taking this extreme act of love, and we're going to get an explanation of why he's done it in just a few minutes. But first, we're going to have to hear from Peter because Peter has to speak up. Uh, so we're going to insert that in verses 8 through 10. Peter's not having any of this. Uh, he's, he's washing the other disciples' feet, and he gets to Peter, and Peter's not having it. You're not washing my feet. Why, what, why isn't Peter having it? Because Jesus is placing himself below Peter. Peter's going, this isn't right. And it's not. It's not right. And so Peter's sentiment is valid and genuine. It's not right that the person in the place of honor should be in the lowest place right now. And uh, Jesus makes him do it. Jesus chooses this time, actually, to give us a spiritual metaphor. So uh, let's look at this. In verses 8 through 10, Peter says to him, you shall never wash my feet. And, you know, this is in typical Peter fashion. I love, I heard a preacher preaching this one time, and, you know, we always see the, the English Jesus, the accent, you know. Unless I wash thou's feet, you know. Uh, and he portrayed it, he's just like, you know, Jesus taking one knee going, Peter, unless, you know, and I'm like, this is probably more real. This is, it's like, Peter, really, again? All right, here we go. So Jesus is loving his disciples till the end. Peter says, you shall not wash my feet. And Jesus answered him and says, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Now, this is a spiritual metaphor. I'll explain it in a minute. And Simon Peter, figuring out at least, well, that sounds bad, says, well, let's go to the other extreme then. Uh, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus again goes, Peter, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you, because he knew Judas wasn't. Now, here's the spiritual metaphor that's going on here that you need to understand. And Jesus has just chosen to throw this in because Peter has given him, once again, a teaching moment. And the spiritual metaphor is this. The first is... If I don't wash you, you don't have any part with me. Only Jesus can cleanse. He's talking about spiritual cleansing here. He's saying, I'm holy. If I don't cleanse you, if I don't make you holy, you can't be with me. Nothing else. No other bathing is going to work. If I don't cleanse you, you have no part of me. Right? Very simple. And then Peter says, let's do a shower then. And, uh, and Jesus goes, no, no. Uh, you're already clean, you just need your feet washed. And again, this is a spiritual metaphor. We will read when we get to John chapter 15 in verse 3 that uh, Jesus will say, you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Or in other words, because you believed my words, because you put faith in me, you've been cleansed. Amen. This is salvation. Yes. This is being given the righteousness of Christ. But he says, you do still need your feet washed because our feet is what we walk around the world in. And so it's a, it's a picture that we have been cleansed. We've been made holy by the words of Jesus, by the cross, the sacrifice of Jesus, by the blood of Jesus. But that as we walk through the world, we're going to pick up world and, you know, have a bad day and not be loving and say something mean and have to go, God, forgive me. Please wash my feet. Uh, I've picked up some world as I was walking around. And so it's a beautiful metaphor uh, that I'm not sure Peter totally gets. He gets it now. I'm not sure if he totally got it then. Uh, but uh, Jesus is saying only he can cleanse us and that uh, we are going to occasionally need our feet washed by Jesus. We're going to have to be cleansed by the Son of God from just the things we've picked up walking through the world. That makes sense? Now, in 12 through 17, I want to read these because Jesus is going to explain why he did what he just did. So, uh, Jesus says, 
so when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? This is an indication. This was school. This was important. This was a lesson. Do you understand what I've just done? And then he begins to explain it. You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. In other words, you honor me. You call me rabbi. You put me in the seat of honor at the dinner at the Last Supper, and you should have. That was appropriate. I am rabbi. I am teacher. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Right? And so we're beginning to see the lesson here, that uh, you've honored my position, but I'm telling you that my position is one of service. And so uh, it goes on, for I've given you an example that you should do as I have done. So very clearly, Jesus has done this as an example. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. Or in other words, if I've done this, don't expect that you're going to be treated in a greater way. No one's greater than his master. If I've served, what do you think that means for you if you call me Lord? Right? And so, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Now, there's a lot I want to get out of this, so let's, let's just play with this for a little bit. The example that he's trying to set is that Jesus does have authority. He is rabbi, but the purpose of authority is to serve. That authority is to serve. The lesson he's trying to give, the example he's trying to give is, you rightly discern that I'm the one here in authority, but I want you to understand that the purpose of authority is to serve because service, voluntary service, is love. And I'm loving you till the end. And we're talking about love, and we'll figure that out by the end of the chapter. Now, it's a lot like what he said in Matthew 23. There's this great chapter in Matthew 23. It's the eight woes chapter where Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and the religious leaders and he has eight woes. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. Whoa, 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 whoa. It's heavy. Whoa, you know? And as he's beginning this chapter, he talks about this thing about titles. He says uh, in Matthew 23, 6 through 12, they mean the Pharisees, love the best place at feasts, the best seats in the synagogue. They want to come in and sit in the seats of honor. Uh, greetings in the marketplaces and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. Use my title, please. The rabbi is here. Get it? What Jesus is talking about? It's because we have no modern equivalent to that, right? Or do we? But you do not be called rabbi, for one of you, or for one is your teacher, the Christ. And you are all brethren. What's that mean? You're all equal here. Right? Do not call anyone underneath your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So he's saying that the highest place of authority is the place of service. Authority is given to serve. And he's not really saying don't call, I mean, it's okay today if you go home and call your father, father. You know, he's not saying don't use the word or don't call someone, it's okay to go to school on Monday and call your teacher, teacher. Uh, he's saying that don't honor the title, don't pursue the title, don't elevate the title, uh, don't desire the title, uh, desire the service. The point of the title is for service. So you get what's going on there. And so he's addressing the very thing that he addressed in Matthew 23, because the disciples would occasionally argue about who's going to be the greatest among them and what seats they were going to get to sit in. And, you know, I know Jesus gets the first seats, but who gets the one next to him? And uh, all that stuff. And Jesus is going, no, no, no. Here's the example. Start with the lowest possible position in the room. Feet washing. Right? And so that's what he's trying to teach him. Now, Jesus literally took the lowest place in the room. And it reminds me of the parable he tells in Luke 14 of the wedding seating. When he says, if you go to a wedding, 
don't take the highest seat unless someone more honorable than you comes in and they go, hey, dude, can you move down so that this guy can sit in your seat and you end up at the kid's table? <laughs> right? He says, take the lowest seat, start at the kid's table. And then the guy will come in and go, what are you doing at the kid's table? Hey, come on, move up here into a more honorable seat. Because it ends with the same passage, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. And so it's just an admonition to be like Jesus. And when we come in, take the lowest place. And if someone else moves you up, great. If Jesus moves you up, great. But you, I'll tell you this. I I jokingly say only pastor because Jesus makes me. Uh, But there's truth in that because I don't want to be doing this unless he's put me here. I don't want to be doing this because people put me here. That is not safe. (laughs) I want to know I'm only doing it because Jesus put me here. In other words, I want him to exalt me to whatever position he wants me in, not me. And you want him to exalt you whatever position he wants you in, not you. So we humble ourselves, and he can exalt us as he wants, right? Now, so what I want you to see here, and this is important, is Jesus started out by saying, I know the authority I have, and I'm going to take this authority, and I'm going to take the lowest position and serve, because... This is not just an example to serve. If all you get out of this is uh, Jesus is calling us to serve one another, you've missed the point. Jesus is doing way more than this because he's getting ready to do something with the disciples. It's not just this is an example to serve. He's saying, I'm preparing you to receive authority. You get that? So he's telling these disciples, look, I'm giving you this example because I want to give you authority. And if I'm going to give you authority, you need to know that the purpose of it is to serve. I don't want you to use authority like the Pharisees use it, just to get a title and a good seat at the next ball game. Right? right? And so, for us as well, we need to see this as not just a call to service, but a call to authority. And so, he's saying, if I'm going to give you authority, I need you to have the right attitude for this authority. So... What about us? Do we have the correct attitude to receive the authority Jesus wants to give us? Can he authorize our attitude? That's a good rhetorical question. Feel free to answer that with God on your own. Right? Because he wants to give us authority to represent him. But we have to have the attitude, the humble attitude, the servant attitude. Uh, the purpose, we have to understand the purpose of our authority is to serve. Uh, Paul gets into this super clearly in Philippians chapter 2, and I want to just read this. It's a familiar passage, you probably know it, but in light of what we're talking about, I'm thinking it'll, it'll ring a little louder. Uh, he says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Um, now, pursuing a position or a title uh, or having people call you something, I, to me, seems like the very definition of ambition and conceit. I'm not saying it's wrong to have a title. I'm saying it's wrong to make that your goal. That's good. Amen. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Sounds like service to me, doesn't it? Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was, in, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. In other words, he knew he was God. He had no problem saying, I'm the son of God. He knew exactly who he was. But knowing who he was, knowing he had unlimited authority, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. And became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So Paul's telling us this is the attitude that we're supposed to bring to authority. The attitude that Christ had, who had more authority than anyone. And humbled himself more than anyone. And took the lowest role and served. So you're getting this, right? Okay. What I want you to see as we go on is this is a preparation for authority. It's not just a call to service. Service is a subset of love. It's really a call to greater love, which we're going to get to in a minute. But I want you to see this. 
uh, the, the thing here in both of these cases, uh, in, in uh, the, the passage you read in John and in the passage you just read in Philippians, God knows who he is. He has no problem saying who he is. He is very confident in who he is. So I'm not talking about false humility and saying, oh, I'm, you know, if someone calls you something, you go, no, 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 that's not me. Don't call me that. Just call me Bob, you know, whatever. Uh, and and uh, there's a, a mix here. And I, uh, so again, I don't, for example, it's not real important to me that, you know, you call me Pastor Tony. If you call me Tony, that's fine. I'm probably not going to notice because I just, you know, answered either one. Um, but at the same time, uh, you know, it would be wrong for me to demand, I think, to be called pastor. That would be an indication that I'm way too into my title. And besides, of the fivefold, that's probably the least one that describes me anyway. Uh, but it's just the one we use. And, but it would also be wrong for me to engage in false humility and go, well, no, don't call me pastor. Just call me servant Tony. You know? <laughs> that would also make you go, yeah, no. <laughs> right? Amen. Something sounds off there. So I'm not talking about false humility. It, it's absolutely okay to be confident in who you are and who God has made you. Jesus was very confident in his authority. You be confident in your authority. That's awesome. Uh, I, there's things I'm good at, and I don't have any problem saying I'm good at these things. There's things I'm bad at, and I'll tell you I'm bad at those things, and someone else should do them, right? So it's not false humility. It's being confident enough in who we are in Christ to choose service. I am so confident in who I am, I don't need validation. I don't need human uh, recognition. I don't need somebody using my title. I'm so confident in who I am in Christ that I can just serve. I'm speaking this for all of us. Are we? Are we that? Are we so confident in who we are in Christ? I go, I don't, I don't need you to recognize who I am. I know who I am. I can just use this to serve. Right? Now, this is the kind of church that Jesus is trying to build up. The one that is just going, yes, I'm very confident in God's love for me. I'm very confident in the giftings he give me. I'm very confident I can use those to serve others. And you don't even need to notice them. It's okay. Right? Now, we don't always do well with that, do we? And so let me do this. I'm just going to take a little rabbit trail here uh, because sometimes there are things in dynamic tension in the Bible, and this is one of those times. The Bible talks a lot about honoring those impositions of authority, right? And I'm not going to read them because it would take too long, and it sounds a little self-serving for me to read you passages on honoring pastors. So uh, I'll just skip that. I'll assume you've, some pastors told you about that. Uh, but it's not just pastors. Uh, you know, it's government officials. It's, you know, uh, all your parents, stuff like that. There's, there's, the Bible talks a lot about honoring those in authority. Well, how do we honor those in authority if we're supposed to, if those in authority are supposed to be servants and they're supposed to be the servants of all? And it's, it's a weird thing. And so I want to give you something that'll help you. And actually, the best place to see this is it's mirrored in marriage in Ephesians 5. What's Ephesians 5 say? Husband, love your wife like Christ loved the church and Give, just have, yeah, so, and he gave himself for her, so wash her with the word, uh, sacrifice your life for her, and wives, uh, submit to and honor your husbands. That's what Ephesians 5 says. Now, most of the time, when I get into marriage counseling, what's basically going on is uh, I got a guy going, she won't submit to me, and I got a woman going, he's not loving me. Right? And you know what I say? I say, you're focused on the wrong job. You're focused on her job, and you're focused on his job. Focus on your job. You just worry about loving her, whether she submits to you or not. Don't demand submission. Amen. Just love her. That's her choice. And you honor your husband, whether he loves you or not. And if one of you will start doing the God thing in this, a lot of times it ends up both of you doing it, and it works. And, and how many of you have kind of, well, don't raise your hands. <laughs> don't want to see any wives raising their husband's hands. But we experience this, right? We go, oh, and I do my part, and they do their part. 
It works better. Well, this is the same type of thing. Uh, how would church be if you're going to a church and the pastor is going, I'm the pastor, honor me. And the people are going, no, dude, we pay your salary. You work for us. You're a servant and you better show up <laughs> when we say show up. Who wants to go to that church? You get what I'm saying? Now, what if it's the opposite? What if the pastor's going, yes, 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 thank you, but I'm really here to serve you guys. And they're going, no, 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 we want to honor you. And, uh, well, okay, but I'm going to serve. Well, that's okay, but we're going to honor. Now, that's a cool church because everybody's focused on their job, right. Right? right? You understand what I'm saying? So it's not that either or, it's that we do what we're called to do. So when I'm in a position of authority, then uh, I'm trying to serve. So I don't care if you call me pastor or trainer or not. But when I'm under authority, like, for example, there are other churches that I go to where, where title is a very culturally a very big deal. And I'm very careful to use titles because now I'm under authority and I need to honor authority. Do you understand? So when you're over, you just serve. When you're under, you honor. It's very simple. If we get them mixed up, you get to worry about uh, the other person's role, then we get in trouble. So it's just like marriage. You understand? Does that help you? Okay. So we are confident in who we are in Christ, so confident that we can just choose to serve because whether or not we're recognized, we're still who we are in Christ. Amen? Amen. All right, so this is what Jesus is after, and now we're going to get into the why because he's setting the disciples up for something. And I'm not going to read verses 18 through 30. It's basically Jesus uh, cryptically pointing out that Judas is going to betray him, and of course Judas does. And it's just not that much fun, so we're not going to read it. So, but he throws in a little tidbit in verse 20 that's significant. Verse 20, uh, he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whoever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Now, Jesus has been saying all along in John, if you receive me, you receive the Father, Right? Now, he's saying, whoever receives, uh, who I send receives me, and he who receives me receives the Father. He's added another layer. He's going, uh, if you receive me, you receive the Father. Now, whoever receives someone I send receives me and receives the Father. He's going to send people. So what I want you to see here is he's talking like this, and the disciples, I don't think, get it yet because he's getting ready to transfer his authority to the apostles. And so he's trying to prepare them to receive authority. He's, he's hinting at it. He's going, uh, I've been saying, whoever receives me receives the Father. Now I'm saying, whoever receives you receives me receives the Father. I'm transferring authority to speak in my name. It's happening. It's coming. Now, uh, I love that he used the word send. What does the word apostle mean? Anyone know? Sent one. one. Who's the first apostle? Jesus. Jesus. Who sent him? And then every other sent one was sent by Jesus. Jesus, Right? Isn't that cool? Just passing down the sending. Now, so he's transferring this authority that he himself received from the Father. It's just like with him and the Father. In John 5, there's all through John, but I just picked that one because it was the most clear. In John 5, he's clearly saying, uh, I have received authority from the Father. What's interesting is we're going to read, when we get to John 20, Jesus is going to look the apostles right in the eyes and say, as the Father has sent me, I send you. You get it? You see how this thing's just passed down. And so Jesus is not just telling them, hey, you need to serve. He's going, I need you to get an attitude so that I can authorize you to speak in my name. I need to, I'm getting ready to give you authority. As the Father sent me, I'm going to send you. And I need you to go in the same spirit that I've been in from the Father. Okay? And so this is what he's doing. So with this, we get to the crux of this chapter, the new commandment 
in verses 33 through 35. You guys know this, but uh, we had to build up to it. So let's read that, 33 through 35. He says, little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I'm going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, why is he saying what he's getting ready to say to them? Just said it, because he's leaving. Right. Got it? I'm leaving, so I'm going to give you something before I go. I'm going to make this next statement because I'm going to the Father. And here's the next statement. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is going, because I'm leaving... I'm giving you a new commandment. Because I'm getting ready to transfer authority to you, because I'm going back to the Father, I'm going to need you to do something new. I'm going to need you to love. Now, don't we already have a commandment to love? Isn't that the first commandment, love God? The second commandment, love your neighbors yourself? Golden rule, way back in Leviticus. Haven't we had that for a long time? Why do we need a new commandment? Let's make sure we understand. Well, the old commandment, said to love your neighbor as yourself, right? In other words, uh, love your neighbor as much as is humanly possible. Now, what Jesus knows and what he's going to talk about in the next few chapters is he's getting ready to give them the Holy Spirit. So he's going to raise the expectations. We're not going to the, the goal now isn't to love as much as humanly possible because the Spirit of God is going to come live in you. Now let's talk about loving as much as godly possible. That's a whole new commandment. That's a whole nother level of loving. You got it? So let's look at this. Note what he said. A new commandment I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. So let's make this very clear. Old Testament, Tony, love people like you love Tony. All right, I think I can do that. New Testament, Tony, love people like Jesus loves you. Wait a minute. That sounds a lot harder than loving people like Tony loves Tony. Doesn't it? And it is. He's up the game. And so what I want you to see is they had the old commandment to love. And they really just had to love their neighbors. Now, he had already extended the range of that commandment to cover everybody, including his enemies, in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, it makes it very clear that we're not just to love uh, people that are nice to us, we're also to love specifically our enemies and those who persecute us, right? You guys remember that from the Sermon on the Mount. And there's even a place where uh, Jesus is talking to a guy and he quotes this golden rule, you should love your neighbors yourself, and the guy goes, yeah, but who's my neighbor? And Jesus proceeds to tell him a parable about a Samaritan uh, who helps a guy who's beaten up on the side of the road called the Good Samaritan. And the point of that parable is basically the guy that you don't like is your neighbor, so love him because they didn't have any dealings with Samaritans, right? So we've already had it extended in range to we're not just loving our neighbors ourselves, now we're loving our neighbor and our enemies as ourselves. What I want you to see here is he's extending the quality of love. It's not as self anymore. It's as Jesus, right? So, again, it's a simple thing to say, but that needs pondering. Because uh, I'm usually, I feel pretty proud of myself if I just act nice to someone who's being mean to me. <laughs> but if you come up at that point and go, did you love that person the way Jesus loves you? I go... I was, I was nice to him. I didn't say half the things that were in my head. <laughs> you understand how much higher a bar this is. That we've been given the Spirit of God and we've been given the model of Jesus to love like this. This is a really high bar. And this is what the church is called to. So Jesus, you know, staying with all we've been looking at here, Jesus is loving the disciples He's given the example of service. He's basically saying, I'm, I want to give you guys authority, and so I'm giving you a new commandment. I need you to really pay attention to the way I've been loving on you guys because that's what I want you to do to everybody. 
right? So it, things just got real, right? For this, you know, Peter's, I mean, obviously they don't get it. Peter's going to take an ear tonight with a sword, right? And Jesus is going to have to put the ear back and go, not what I meant, Peter. <laughs> Takes a while to get this. Okay, so you understand what he's after. Now, what's interesting is he said, I want you to love other people in the way that I love you. And we're going to read in John 15, 9. Well, how has Jesus loved us? John 15, 9 says, as the Father has loved me, I have loved you. Okay, holy cow, if it wasn't hard enough now, you're saying I have to love people in the same way the Father loves Jesus? Get out of town. And Jesus is like, no, for real, that's the deal. The Father loves me ridiculously, and I've loved you that same way. I've been modeling that. I am the exact representation of the Father. And so I'm asking you to love people the way I've loved you, you know, the way the Father has loved me. That's the way I've loved you. So just love people like God loves people. God is love. Wow. That's kind of a heavy call. Now, who feels like they've really got that down? Exactly. Okay? So I want us to see what a big, weighty deal this is. That he has said, love as Jesus loves, which is as the Father loves. Now, has anybody noticed yet there's a pattern here? The Father to Jesus, Jesus to us. Let me spell it out for you. The Father, Jesus, is very clear in saying, uh, I didn't come on my own, I've been sent by the Father. What's he doing now? Sending the disciples. The Father sent Jesus, Jesus sends us. He's been very clear, the authority I have to do the things I'm doing are, is not my own. These are signs of the Father, that the Father has given me authority. Now I give you authority to heal the sick and cast out devils. You see the pattern? From the Father to Jesus, from Jesus to us. The exact same thing, the exact same quality. We're sent the way he's sent. We're authorized the way he's authorized. Jesus says, the words that I speak to you are not my words, but they're from the Father. If you hear me, you've heard the Father. And now the Holy Spirit's going to remind us of the words that Jesus has spoken. Words from the Father to Jesus. Words from Jesus to us. In other words, we have the words of the Father. From the Father to Jesus to us. And now, it's love. As the Father has loved me, I have loved you. As I have loved you, I want you to love others. That's the new commandment. Go. Amen. And in fact, uh, this works for all things. We saw in verse 3, uh, let me just read that again to you. He said... Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hands. The Father gave Jesus all things. Does anybody know what Revelation 21.7 says? He who overcomes shall inherit all things. Wow. All things from the Father to Jesus. All things from Jesus to us. It just keeps passing down. You understand the pattern. It's important that we see this pattern, that Jesus only does what he sees the Father doing, and then we are supposed to emulate Jesus. It's all from the Father. And it really raises the bar, especially in what we're talking about today, our ability to love one another. Now, just to give you an example of this, Jesus, y'all are familiar with the story of the prodigal son, right? The prodigal son comes back. He only expects to be a servant. That'll, I, I just want to get fed. I'll just be a servant. Dad will feed me. Instead, Dad loves him, puts a robe on him, puts a ring on him, restores his authority, restores his position, does all that stuff. But the older brother is not happy about this because the older brother feels like he's borne the brunt of the labor while the younger brother was off gallivanting. And uh, he doesn't see the point of giving a feast for the younger brother, Right? Now, he's only doing, he's only doing uh, 
the golden rule. The younger brother uh, coming back, oh, what was his expectation? I just want to be a servant. I don't need a party. I don't need a robe. I don't need a ring. I just want to be a servant and have dinner. I don't expect my older brother to treat me any more than I would treat myself. If he treats me like a servant, that's fine. The older brother is only meeting the younger brother's expectations. He's only yet loving the younger brother the way the younger brother loves himself. He's doing adequately the golden rule. He's, he's going, if I went away and wasted the inheritance, I wouldn't come back and expect a robe and a fatted calf either. I'm only treating you as I treat myself. And Jesus comes along. Jesus is the true older brother of all prodigals. Jesus comes along and goes, I'm not going to treat you as best as humanly possible. I'm not going to treat you the way I would treat someone who's genuinely guilty of squandering his inheritance. I'm going to treat you like the Father does. I'm going to love you. I'm going to be excited you're back. I'm going to be excited about generously sharing my inheritance with you. Let's throw you a party. Let's get the calf out and cook it up. You see this? Jesus is the good older brother. Amen. He is the example. Amen. So it's not just don't be like the bad older brother. It's be like Jesus. Jesus is just like the Father. This, all things are mine. And then we read in Revelation, all things are yours if you ever come. He is generous with his inheritance. He is generous with his love. He is an amazing older brother. And so we can learn from him to go higher than just loving others as ourselves, to love like Jesus loves, which is amazing, which is loving when people don't deserve it, which is loving prodigals who have genuinely done really stupid stuff and cost themselves, right? And so as prodigals come back, we're going to have to decide, are we going to love, uh, do the golden rule? Well, we love you and we'll accept you, but you're going to have to work at gaining our trust again. And, you know, we're not going to give you a ring or a robe or anything yet. You just try not to screw up for a while. Or are we going to be excited like Jesus? This kind of is where the rubber hits the road with our walk, isn't it? Yeah. And, uh, you know, it it's, gets into this last verse here. It really uh, speaks to the character of the church. In verse 35, Jesus says, By this all will know that you are my disciples, if we have love for one another. Uh, Godlike love is the mark of a sent one of someone who's walking as sent from Jesus. Or in other words, to continue with what I was just talking about, the way we treat prodigals when they come back maybe will show whether or not we are really sent ones. Yeah? How's the church done? I don't know. Some, some good, some bad. Doesn't mean we just you don't speak the truth in love. Doesn't mean we just blow off everything. But our attitude needs to be godlike love because it's this godlike love that shows men that we're genuinely disciples of Jesus that we're genuinely sent ones that we're genuinely walking in the love of the father that we've learned from Jesus amen, amen. all right does that sound hard enough yes. okay now i love this prayer in philippians 1 uh, which just, you know, emphasizes this. And there's a, a point, I actually learned this from Laura Gonda back when, a long time ago when we were doing Fire Dweller. Um, Paul prays, he says, For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you with all the affection of Jesus Christ. You know what he's saying there? I really love you because I've tapped into God's love for you. I am loving you with the affection of Christ. He goes, and so here's what I'm praying for you. I'm praying that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. And when Laura prayed into this at one of our Fire Dweller prayer meetings, she brought out this point, which I thought was awesome. I've never forgotten it. That, uh, and this is a good prayer, by the way, for all of us, that our love would abound in knowledge and all discernment. You know what that means? 
That means I go, hey, Keith, does Keith love me? Keith goes, yeah, I love you. I go, what if you had complete knowledge and discernment of me, Keith? What if you saw all my dark thoughts, all, my, uh, all the wicked things I've done in my past? Would you? That's what he's talking about. Think about that, that your love would abound in all knowledge and discernment, that I can, I can know you, really know you, like Jesus knows you and love you. That's radical. Wow, what would a church be like that's like that? That you can be so real, they'll love you anyway. In knowledge and discernment. That's very quiet. All right. Thank you, Laura, for that tidbit. You even remember that? All right. So let's finish up. Last passage, 36 through 38. Simon Peter, can have Simon speak up again. Uh, Simon Peter says to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus says, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me after. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered him, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. And we all know what happens, right? So it does. Just as Jesus said, uh, Peter denies Jesus three times before morning. Now, the where are you going question is going to be answered really thoroughly in John chapter 14. So I'm going to save that until we're in John chapter 14. But I want to show you something here that you may not have caught. I don't believe Peter was just boasting. I believe Peter had a genuine heart to stay with Jesus had a genuine desire for intimacy with Jesus, genuinely thought he was willing to die for him. Amen. So I think he had a genuine desire for sacrificial intimacy that came up or was at war, an internal war, with difficulty dying to his flesh. When push came to shove and it looked like he was maybe going to have to suffer in his flesh, he couldn't do it. Does anyone here have experience with warring inside between a genuine desire for intimacy with Jesus and a difficulty dying to your flesh. Anyone? Wow, I thought there'd be more. We talked about that on Resurrection Sunday, remember? We all have this internal war. I really want to be intimate with Jesus, but it's hard for me to die to my flesh, right? And what I want you to see Ironically, in John 15, again, Jesus is going to make this point. He's going to say, no greater love has anyone than this, that he laid down his life for his friend. So in other words, the very thing Peter wants to do to lay down his life for Jesus is the thing Jesus is going to do, lay down his life for the disciples and for us. And he says, this is the greatest form of love, which Peter couldn't quite attain to, right? But here's the beautiful thing. In John 21, when Jesus is restoring Peter, Jesus prophesies to Peter and says, you will die for me. He, he tells him in what manner he's going to die. We know that Peter went to Rome and was crucified upside down. So Peter will learn this kind of love. Peter did not have this kind of love the night Jesus was betrayed. And he couldn't do it. But by the end of his life, he had learned this kind of love. And he died sacrificially because of his love for Jesus and because of his love for the church. And so what I want you to get out of this today, this whole thing has been about love and about being prepared to take the authority that Jesus wants to give us and use it to love and serve others. And to understand that we have to learn to love. We don't just decide, well, I'm going to love people now, like Jesus loves people. We have to learn that. That's what we're doing between now and when Jesus comes again. That's it. We're learning to love. We're learning to love people. We're learning to love from Jesus. And what I want you to see is learning to love is how we win this internal war. Because remember we saw in John 15, greater love enables laying down our lives. Well, if we're having trouble laying down our lives and denying ourselves for Jesus, the, the remedy is greater love. 
It's how we win the war. We win the war inside by increasing love, by learning to love. And so we need to be uh, on a journey. That needs to be our prayer. God, teach me to love like you love. Teach me to love like you love. I need to learn to love. I'm on that journey as much as you guys are. Just because I'm up here speaking doesn't mean I got this down. Right? Loving's hard. But we had it, and, and we can always do better. But it needs to be an intentional goal as, as, uh, in our walk as Christians that we are learning to love. Uh, and especially learning to love people that are harder to love. And they're out there. Some of them are in your family. Right? Now, two things I'm going to give you that will help you. And then we're going to close up. The first is this. We must experience his love before we can express it. First John 4, we love him because he first loved us. Or in other words, we love because we've experienced love. And so we have to experience his love before we can express it. You can't just decide, I'm going to go out and express the love of Christ to people. You have to experience the love of Christ. And so it's really important that when we gather where there are opportunities, for example, what we're getting ready to do in just a minute with the worship team, which should probably start coming up now, uh, where you can, where you have these opportunities to experience the love of Jesus, that you're saying, Jesus, I need to experience your love. It's not wrong. It's a good prayer. Jesus, I need to experience your love. Paul prayed that, that you would know the width and length and depth and height of his love. So, Lord, I need to experience your love so that I can express your love. I haven't experienced your love enough. I'm not expressing it well enough. Sometimes the best place to experience his love is when we've been a little prodigal, right? And we want to withdraw, but then Jesus loves us. We go, oh, yeah, it's so good. We experience his love. The other is this. He talked about service because service is an expression of love, but also service increases love. And here's where that principle comes from. In Matthew 6, uh, verse 21, Jesus makes this statement. He's talking about storing up treasure in heaven. And he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. So there's a principle. If you want your heart to be in something, you invest a treasure in it. So uh, among my greatest treasures would be my wife, uh, my time, and my resources. So for me to spend my time and resources serving you is an investment of my treasure. It's impossible for me to do that without my heart being in it a little bit. So you have somebody you have difficulty loving, serve them. Invest a treasure in them. Take them to dinner. Something. And you'll find you begin to have a heart for them. It begins to become personal. And so serving, one of the reasons he's called us to, to serve with our authority is because it causes us to love. Things you've served, organizations you've served, uh, you tend to love. You tend to having a heart investment in that, right? And so we can do these things. We can experience the love of Jesus, and we can serve, and they will both help us learn how to love like Jesus loves. So how many of you want to go on that journey for the rest of your life of learning to love like Jesus loves? How many of you recognize how ridiculously hard that is? How many of you are not concerned that there will be people to challenge that in your life in the future. <laughs> awesome. It's like God has it all worked out. So let's pray that, and then let's go into worship. And uh, again, I just want you to use this time as we're worshiping as an opportunity to experience in a greater way the love of Jesus, which is the love of the Father, which is amazing. Amen? So Lord, we pray. Uh, Lord, we, we want to uh, walk in the authority you've given us in the right way, uh, representing you correctly with love and with a heart to serve and not to just be exalted. And so, Lord, we ask that you would teach us how to love like Jesus loves. We ask today and ongoing in the future that we would more and more have encounters uh, with your love and with the love of the Father so that we be changed. We be changed from glory to glory as we behold you and behold your love for us. 
Lord, we pray that our love would abound more and more in knowledge and discernment, that you would be able to trust us with even encouraging information about other people because you know we'll love them and we won't hurt them. Lord, we pray that we'll be a church that is learning to love like Jesus loves. Holy Spirit, we just invite your presence. We just invite your presence right now. We just invite the presence of God who is love into this room.